0: Hi everyone! Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. Um, this is our forty-something episode. I don't know the the numbers on the title uh, when you download it, so all the information you need is right there. But if this is your first time listening, welcome and thank you. I'm Matthew Monagle. I'm one half of the Matt hosts, and I'm joined as always by my my Matt partner, my Matt friend, Matt Donato. How you doing, bud?
1: Pretty good. Doing okay.
0: I feel like that's a lie because I know what's going on in your life right now.
1: I'm trying to act like everything is cool (laughs) and my life is not in constant chaos. So uh, I'm just going with pretty okay because we don't need this to turn into another therapy session.
0: Fair enough. Nothing traumatic, nothing bad, just normal, above average amounts of chaos, I would say, is where you're at right now.
1: Minus the uh, shitty horror movies I watch. Yes, the trauma is uh, we're just going to ignore
0: it. (laughs) Okay, well, let's um, let's have a conversation about a movie that you do like in order to kind of keep your mind off what's going on right now for you. How's that sound? I think that sounds wonderful. And you know what? We should probably invite somebody else to this conversation, too. We might even have heard that person on this already
1: <laughs> with a little giggle. So, yes, yeah. at this point, <laughs> yeah, as, this is the, uh, well, in a way, this is the return of our guest for this episode, because for those who don't know, I'm just going to spill that, we would have loved to have had this Wild Zero episode up a few weeks back, even months back. But, well, the internet sometimes is a cruel, fickle beast. And we'll eat your audio <laughs> without knowing. So, Monagle, this is this is our second take. You think you can make it through?
0: I think I can. I have redundancies on top of redundancies. And I, as I joked about in the pre-show, I have forgotten all the good jokes and all the good commentary we made. So this is going to be brand fucking new for me.
1: All right. Well, with that said, I can now confidently bring back our guest... For the second first time, we'll say, co-host of this ends at Prom, a freelance scribbler, including places as certified forgotten, and bartender extraordinaire, Harmony Colangelo. Harmony, welcome. Thank you for having me back again. Yes. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> I think that's that's the bigger thing.
0: I gotta say thank you because I, you know, your time is valuable, and you would have totally been within your right to say, get your shit together, Matt's. <laughs> talk to me in a year. We'll try this again. So I appreciate the quick turnaround and I appreciate the willingness to to not be done in by technical issues and come back and talk about your film.
2: Yeah, but I'm also not going to miss an opportunity to talk about the movie for today. I, I will I will bring this up any chance I get. So why would I ever put this off for like a year?
0: <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. Well, we're We're going to get to Wild Zero and you're going to talk about it for a second time and it's going to be just as lovely as it was the first time. Hopefully better. <laughs> Hopefully better. We've had time to, to think about our talking points and refine them. And it's kind of cool because we're going to get to respond to your piece that you wrote for Certified Forgotten. So I yeah. actually, I have a couple of questions queued up on what you wrote. So I'm going to make you expand upon thoughts that you committed to paper. But before we get to all of that, as we normally do on the show, and as we've done once before and we will do again, uh, I want to talk a bit about your history as a film critic and your early days as a horror fan. So you know, you've certainly over the years, you've written about a lot of different horror movies, you, you put your stamp and brought a lot of great thoughts to, to a lot of films. But I want to go back to kind of the beginning and how you got into the horror genre, what those first movies were, you know, what the, the first couple of films that you remember watching as a child were and, and kind of how they impacted you.
2: Yeah, uh, what's really fun is I've done a lot of soul searching from the first time we recorded this. And I think I figured out my my trajectory so much better than the last Mm. time you asked me this question. Um, Yeah, I got through into films in general, as well as horror, specifically through television, because my family was too. Honestly, they would complain that movies were too expensive, but realistically, they were just cheap. Like my dad is the kind of person who stole cable for like eight years. So, like, we could have afforded things, he just elected not to. So, I actually got into horror by watching things on, like, TNT or more in the case for the genres that Wild Zero inhabits, the sci-fi channel. And it's probably not the most uh, glowing place to come up through in, like, the horror genre. But most of my favorite movies involved, like, Animals Run Amok or, or Zombies or, like, Abominations of Science but also they were like the cheapest CG of the year 2000. So it was a beautiful mixed bag getting to enjoy things like like Tremors, which is legitimately good, or Anaconda, which is less good, but still fun and actually like a real release littered in with things like the three Shark Attack movies, number three being my favorite, the two Crocodile movies, and Abominable, which I think is just fantastic because it's Rear Window, but with Bigfoot. Have you ever seen Bloodsurf? No. Like, people keep
1: telling me I need to, though. Okay, so I will say Bloodsurf is that sci-fi kind of fun, and I only remember it because you're talking about all these kind of creature attack movies, and that was actually one of the connection points with my father as well. Uh, He's not a horror fan by any means, but Mm -hmm. if there was one way I could get him to watch something in that realm, it was just, like you said, when creatures attack. So if we could watch one of those dumbass, like, Sabretooth or one of those uh, Blood Surf again... It's not something that he would typically enjoy, but we can watch it together. And Surf sticks out because there is one kill where I figured if a guy is on like a boogie board or like a surfboard and he just thinks he's going to get away. And he's literally going into the surf. And as he's going into a wave, just like the alligator or crocodile, it just opens its mouth and he surfs right into it. And it is one of the funniest <laughs> fucking shots I've ever seen in one of those movies.
2: Oh, that reminds me of the end of uh, Shark Attack 3. Have, have either of you ever seen that movie? Because it's not really worth watching, except for like the last five minutes.
0: I have not. No, it sounds like something Donato has.
2: Is Are we talking about the jet ski here? Yeah, we are. So um, for anyone who has not seen Shark Attack 3 and Why Would You? Um, they end up using really bad, uh, maybe maybe good for their budget, but it does not hold up and that just makes it better. Uh, effects where they superimpose people into stock footage of sharks and since they're getting hunted by megalodons like you have a man ride a jet ski like in front of a green screen right into an open shark's mouth that they like licensed the the footage from like National Geographic or something and it is one of the most surreal and
1: perfect things I've ever seen in low-budget films or it's that lifeboat a giant yeah. one, like not a small one, like the eight-person one. And the shark just swallows it whole, but it's just as Harmony said. It's really terrible CGI and these superimposed lifeboat, and it just doesn't look like either belong in the same shot.
2: Yeah, oh, or, or the other really good one, uh, a man is like uh, screw women and children first. I'm going to steal this blonde lady's life preserver and jump off the thing to try to save myself. And leaps right into an open shark's mouth. And you see him like shrink down as he gets closer to the stock
1: footage. You know, now that you say this, I think Deep Blue Sea Three might even be paying homage to Shark Attack Three with its shot God, when somebody jumps I off the wish. boat into a shark's mouth.
2: I th- that. That was probably the moment that I popped harder than any movie last year. Was that specific kill in Deep Blue C three? It's awesome.
1: I'm sorry, I completely derailed and in interrogation and interview portion. So I'm no, gonna let no, him take no. over.
0: It's good. It's good because if I remember correctly, Harmony, you took home one of our prize packs when we did the Deep Blue C- Deep Blue C three um, live tweet. Correct. So this is all super on brand right here.
2: Yeah, I I used to have a personal mission to watch every shark movie, no matter how bad they are, and over the last 10 years, that that's oath has definitely beaten me down more than once, but Deep Blue Sea 3 is one of the best in the genre, by far, especially because, uh, this is like a weird thing of that, I remember being like 8, 9 years old, probably younger in the case of some of these, and I started to first get into like horror horror But up until that point, I had only seen uh, Jaws was probably the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And it had terrified me. And the whole shark genre is just trying to capture. Honestly, it feels like it's trying to capture Jaws, but in like middle of the day reruns on TV, because obviously Jaws is one of the highest grossing films ever released, especially if you just for inflation. But most people, especially now, have not seen that movie in theaters. Uh, James Gunn was talking about this after Suicide Squad came out, and I think that was really tight. But I just think it's so fun that you have all these really low-budget made-for-TV shark movies that are just chasing the dragon of how perfect Jaws is. And I was legitimately scared of this shark, despite living in Ohio, nowhere near the ocean. But, you know, there's a potential of Lake Erie, it's a body of water, I could get eaten by a shark. And yet I see Halloween H20 at like the age of seven and I just go, that's a guy. I'm not scared of him.
0: Well, if, if Lake Placid could be a thing, then certainly there can be giant monsters in every body of water next to you.
2: I mean, it's always possible. Like I had I had fears of a shark busting through the wall and eating me in the bathtub as a small child. I blame my parents for taking me on the Jaws ride at the age of five at Universal Studios and not telling me.
1: Yeah, that's legit, though. I had that same thing. I legit had that same, even the shower, not even like a bathtub, like a shower. How is that going to functionally work for a shark to bust through the wall? But still, I'd be like, nope, it is water adjacent. I'm going to get eaten. Well, have you ever seen Ghost
2: Shark? That's how that works. (gasps) I that's how they get you. Unfortunately, have
1: not seen Ghost Shark.
2: Oh, gosh. Ghost Shark is Ghost Shark is where a shark can get you as long as you are near any sort of body of water. Like, the shark can only travel through water. So, like, there's a great uh, moment where a child's going down a slip and slide, and then the shark comes out and gets him.
1: I All right, I'm adding that to the list. <laughs> I, I've heard of it, I've, I've seen it, but I've always, always like, is this going to be, like, an Ouija shark kind of situation, like, where it's just so dumb it doesn't work?
2: No, it's, I, I'm wary of things after seeing Shark Exorcist, probably the worst movie I've ever seen. And I know someone who's in that movie, and it's the worst thing I've ever seen. They're the best part of it. But no, I, I, I just love the schlock of really gimmicky shark movies that we're getting now. And not the Asylum one, because obviously Asylum's just really beaten that to death since Sharknado. But there was this pure essence of chaos that you got before it got saturated by Sharknado's and Santa Jaws's and all of these other things. Where we hadn't fully leaned into the gimmick of like, look, this exists. That's the point. Haha, isn't Zombieverse cute? This, it exists. That's the joke. For 95 minutes.
1: Santa Jaws, though, is legit one of my new favorite Christmas miracles. I'll even say. <laughs> I think it? it's a Christmas miracle.
2: Oh, is it? I'm it not is. a
1: fan. Oh, oh so I have so boring. much fun. No, I have so much fun with that movie. Okay. Maybe because I made a drinking game for it, but it, it definitely helps.
0: I hear uh, every guest that comes on, we talk about childhood trauma films and Donato, you always share a lot of the things that, you know, I get one more piece of the puzzle in terms of what scared you as a kid and why you're obsessed with it. Now, like the the bathtub shark thing that you just shared someday, we're really going to have to unpack this Christmas thing. And I like we're going to have to bring your dad or your mom on the podcast to understand why you're so obsessed with Christmas horror in all of its various iterations.
1: I don't even know if I could tell you at this point, you're right. Like we would have to really dig into this and that would, that would really <laughs> eat into our guest time that I don't think there's we should. something
0: there. There's some sort of childhood trauma there that I just have to know about.
1: You're going to send me back tumbling like 20 years. You're gonna, I'm going to regress so hard when I figure out what this is.
0: It's going to be great. I'm going to break you and then set you loose on the world. Um, okay. I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about harmony because this is, this is the time of the show where we do that. Um, you know, it's it's funny harmony we've joked with other guests in the past about how influential, you know, these like probably $40,000 a year like buyers for major television networks were, like how much they've shaped entire generations by whatever cheap low budget horror they could get for TBS or TNT or something like that.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: these things that they were picking up because they were probably relatively inexpensive have really shaped tons and tons of horror fans and kind of what they look for in horror movies. So, my follow-up question to I'll, I'll gesture broadly and say all of that all of the shark stuff we talked about <laughs> is you know kind of coming coming to the genre from tv movies coming to the genre from creature features and things of that ilk what was the next step for you you know fast forward to to high school age um you know what were you were you still a big horror fan had you kind of like evolved and taken this with you or is it something that you left and come back to as, as it seems like a surprising number of horror fans do.
2: See, that's a great question because I. I, I start. I really the world opened up from just watching Scooby Doo and Are You Afraid of the Dark and made for TV or like super low budget stuff that played on TV films. Like the world became my oyster once Limewire was an option. And I just mm. had to be patient for five days and not let anyone turn the computer off as I downloaded, you know, Cannibal Holocaust on dial up internet. So. I, the, the world truly became a lot more enriched and interesting once I was able to do that because I I am all for like please pay, pay creators make sure you buy your movies don't pirate things but also I was fifteen and we weren't really uh, have a, we didn't have a good grasp in like two thousand and four or whatever on quite quite how detrimental it was and also I yeah. had no money so yeah if I want to see Rocky Horror and I live in a small town in Ohio this is the only way I'm gonna get to do that. And I have always loved horror, but I'm not directly a horror fan so much as I think of myself as more of a general schlock person. Hmm. Um, Because I'm, as I've gotten older, I'm not a good horror fan because I don't, I'm the worst judge of good horror films because I don't get scared by horror films. So I can watch something like The Witch and go, yeah, this is pretty to look at and I get what you're doing. But I'm mostly bored because I just, I can't do slow burn, like moodiness and stuff like that doesn't work for me. But I can watch like a martial arts movie and be emotionally and physically invested in that as well as hype. I can watch like some absurd B movie that you know could be from any decade because we've never had a shortage of them. But it's certainly been a lot more since the 80s. And I will be so much more emotionally invested in those characters typically because that's just a language that I seem to understand more, which is comedy, like macabre humor, goofiness, but pretty much anything that could have grown out of the Evil Dead influence that said like, wow, Evil Dead, people liked this. Let's just make more weird, goofy shit that we can play for, we can make for like no money and play at weird times on TV. I, I think that's really where I sort of expanded because... I didn't really know, like, the world of schlock, per se. I didn't know what low-budget or B-movies were because I was pretty much influencing myself. But I, uh, I I definitely watched horror more than anything else until I could refine exactly what I liked about horror and sort of expand out from there, where it's like, oh, no, I love kung fu movies. I I love silly parodies and satire of other films. Like, yeah, why not? Let's watch... I don't know. What's what's the most random, arguably bad thing I can think of? Uh, Rockula. Yeah, I'm way into Rockula. Far more than actually good vampire movies that are like good at world building and building tension and suspense.
0: Well, you raise an interesting point there, though, because we, a lot of the guests that we talked to, I guess, kind of by age and when they started seriously thinking about horror or genre films in general, you know, a lot of them ascribe their early days with the genre to video stores, right? Like Blockbuster mm-hmm. fans or local videos fans. And so you're saying that kind of the the big thing for you was not video, but it was the internet and in the early days in the internet where, I mean like, listen, I had a Kazaa account so I'm not exactly <laughs> free of blame here either. There are versions of songs that I probably to this day don't know have like huge static things in the middle. I just think that's an artistic choice, but it was all part of the <laughs> you know the way they used to upload them. But you're saying that like that, that for you kind of those early days of the pre-streaming, more just downloading, kind of open that world up for you.
2: Yeah, because I mean, I'm from a small town of like 10,000 people and we didn't, everyone's, there's always the debate about like, yeah, well, Blockbuster killed family video stores, but it's all we had. And I didn't have a Blockbuster near where Mm -hmm. I lived. That's, That's how in the middle of nowhere we are. If you wanted to drive 45 minutes, you could get a family video. And otherwise you're going to a drug mart, which is a pharmacy that happens to have a movie section. And it is not going to really feature too much horror unless it was like a big um like like a big release that year. So I didn't really favor that very much. Uh so we had there was actually a place in town called The Party Shop and it was where people would go to buy liquor and cigarettes, but upstairs they had the video rental section and on occasion when like the right person was working there, they would let me rent things that were, you know, PG-13 or rated R that I shouldn't have been getting at like 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I saw a lot more sequels because they didn't have good movies there. They only had, like, questionably bad films. Like, none of the good Godzilla movies. Like, let's watch Godzilla 98. Let's watch um, All Monsters Attack. (laughs) Let's watch whatever. And I saw The Rage Carry 2 and The Blair Witch 2 and so many of these sequels before I saw the originals. I saw the Vince Vaughn version of Psycho before I saw the original Psycho because those were my options at the time. Okay, and wait. Oh, sorry, go. <laughs> no, go ahead. By all means, comment on that. <laughs> I was
1: like, I need to know what your reaction was watching Book of Shadows before the original Blair Witch. Like, how did that process go in your mind?
2: See, here's the thing is I had like tangential knowledge of the Blair Witch Project, even though I hadn't seen it. Because they actually did a Scooby-Doo parody of it on Cartoon Network back in the day that only aired, like, once. And it's, like, kind of hard to track down. It's probably on YouTube now, but it was really hard to find for a long time. And it's got, like, a lot of really adult humor. So, like, I knew what Blair Witch was supposed to be. Uh, I don't even know if I can appreciate the original movie because it's been, like, done to death by parody and oversaturation in pop culture for 20 years. But... I was not emotionally prepared for Book of Shadows to be what it was. And I actually prefer it to the original one, all
1: things considered. <laughs> it's not as good, but I I like it more. <laughs> no, it's just such an interesting thing because like you jump into a franchise or, you know, like, you know, a sequel and you do that first and how that colors the original film when like, you know, the influence itself. I think the way we watch things and the order we watch it in absolutely does influence it because uh, there are franchises that. I watch out of order, and I will find myself with affinity toward the things that brought me to that franchise and not exactly the original. Um, you mm-hmm. know, maybe Friday the 13th is one for me where the first Friday is, is fine. I think the sequels, are, you know, choice sequels do it better, and yeah. if I say that online, it's like, oh, well, you don't like the original. Obviously, you're not a fan. And It's like, well, I don't know. The remake is actually what got me into the Friday franchise, and I think that's mm-hmm. one of the better versions of it, so it's just always funny to hear that kind of I watched Book of Shadows first before I watched Blair Witch. So yeah, I actually like Book of Shadows more because it's it's not tainted. You know, you haven't seen Blair Witch first in that case.
2: Yeah. And it's coming up through the 2000s as like a teenager. That was also like the era of the remake. So I saw most horror remakes before I saw the originals because I don't, I don't know how easy it was for anybody to find the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I can tell you what, I had a, no problem finding the 2005 version which is also very good. And I saw that one. And then I saw Texas Chainsaw 2 on TV. And that was my first two Texas movies. And boy, that is quite the roller coaster to go from that one to that one, but a TV edit of it. And, oh gosh, it's, it's something. I... I mean, for for the record, my favorite and my first Friday the Thirteenth movie that I ever saw, and it might be influenced because it was the first one I ever saw, but I also like it when we mix genres in really uh, fun ways. Is Jason X? So it's a a bad it's just it's a bad Jason movie, but I think it's fucking incredible because it's got some of the best kills and it knows what it's doing. You know, it understood the assignment. That's what I like about a good schlock film. You know,
1: mm-hmm. listen, I was the I was the villain of uh, horror Twitter for two days when I posted my ranking. And uh-huh. even, even the writers of Freddy versus Jason were like, if you rank Jason X in your top three, it says something about you. And it's like, all right, go fuck yourself. Like <laughs> you wrote Freddy versus Jason. I don't really know what ground you have to stand on here that much. But yeah,
2: <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I think Jason X is just very fun because I, again, I, Jason's a guy, like he's a big hulking guy. This is no offense to like Kane Hodder or any of the other Jasons or any of the writing, but I'm like, that's a guy. He does cool things. I like to watch him kill people. I came up from like the really macabre, violent era of the two thousands where we had like malicious and very mean spirited horror. I don't, I'm not bothered by violence, but gosh, like I like it when Jason is very self-aware and just trying to one up himself by the time we get to Jason X, because I don't find him scary. I find him fun and he's having the most fun in that film.
1: I think that's so, Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, I just think it's so interesting to uh, see how our preferences Dictate, especially in a large franchise. You know, Harmony, you're talking about schlock, and you're talking about comedy and Sam Raimi and things of that nature. And I think we align a lot there. And mm-hmm. you know, I talked to someone about. I know we connect on this as well. Uh, child's Play, and you yeah. talk about the whole Child's Play franchise. And Bride or Chucky is hands down the best of the franchise. And I think you agree with that as well.
2: Um, I'd say Bride or Child's Play too. I, they're they're different strokes for different
1: folks, but those are clearly the best ones. And it's, you know, you say that out loud, though, and everyone just jumps on you like, oh, Bride of Chucky, like, but that's the funny one. Like, that's that's not the best of the franchise. And I'm like, well, to me, it is, though, because I am the funny horror guy. Like, I am the guy attracted to all those things. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. so impressive to see, like, franchises and how we how we can all appreciate them in different ways and appreciate the different uh, swings they take and just have it be so unique. It's just my favorite thing to hear about that kind of stuff.
2: I mean, if you really want me to get controversial, here, here, I'll become the enemy of of horror Twitter if they want to listen to this. Uh, My first Evil Dead movie, speaking of Sam Raimi, was Army of Darkness, which I saw on a church retreat at the Great Wolf Lodge in northern Ohio. And I uh, then saw Evil Dead 1 and then Evil Dead 2. And I gotta say, 2 is my least favorite. Not, cool. not to say that there's anything wrong with two. I know everyone thinks that's the best one. That's like saying like a 100%, a 99%, and then like a 98%. It's a fantastic trilogy, but I like the first one the best. Maybe it's because it's got the lowest budget, but there's a lot of really ambitious things that I like. Um, the effects are almost, they're they're just bad enough that they're creepy because they're, 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 it's uncanny almost how when you watch people dissolve in this really cheap way in that film that i love and i like that it has it's funny but it's legitimately trying to be scary as opposed to army of darkness which is not trying to be scary and is funny and then the middle one's just kind of like oh eh, we're trying to do both but you know i i like the other two because they have more identity and they don't it's it, that middle ground doesn't work for me so now everyone can come for me so how how's that
1: sound there is something to be said about that Harry House and kind of claymation in the first one, and you know it's right. all you can really do. You just play around with with some colored molds there, but it is kind of creepy. It's just an effect that you don't get anywhere. No, and I the, again like the innovation
2: of of cheap films. Like that's something that I love so much. Um, I was recently on Screen drafts talking about the Tremors franchise and ranking the seven films Mm -hmm. and i do not agree with the final ranking but the top two are indisputable so that i will settle comfortably for that (laughs) but i think one thing i really love about that which is my favorite of the long-running like many entries horror franchises um even though it's not the best one my clearly child's play is the best one overall but it's my favorite because it's the one that feels the most mine is that the Tremors films did not, for the most part, five and six excluded, they did not overwrite plots that stretched their budget to the point of of, of hurting the film. Like, they went, okay, well, let's try and be smart about this. Well, it, we're going to use, it, it's, it's Jaws in the desert. Let's try and show the monster, but only sometimes, and maximize our, like, $10 million budget for the first film. And then they tried to get creative with subsequent things and still be fun still show you the monsters which is exciting because you you want to see monsters in a monster movie and I I really love how they there were just little bits of it the fourth movie is a little slow and a little dull but it's also a western so it makes sense and they wrote the plot around that and I just think that's really really clever and you you see that innovation in low-budget filmmaking that is one of my favorite things
0: I I have no I have no notes on the Tremors conversation. Those movies are are a wild ride from start to finish. Um, I do actually I do want to say Donato, I'm very proud of you for not um, using our conversation previously as an opportunity to talk about the Evil Dead remake. That showed a tremendous amount of restraint on your part. And I'm very proud of you.
2: <laughs>
1: I, I have my moments.
0: I know. For the I record,
1: know. I I love the remake too. <laughs> the remake is the best one. I know. I, I do, know how both of you feel about the that. The remake balance. is the best one. <laughs>
2: I don't think it's the best one, but I, 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 okay. In terms of quality, it probably is the best one, but for my own taste, it's not the best one. So that's kind of where I sit. But again, I, you're, you're looking at like four day, like pretty much perfect films and comparing them against each other.
1: And that's just not fair. <laughs> totally. No, I totally agree.
0: Well, in the few minutes that we have left before we're going to talk about today's film, and I actually want to say that everything that you're hearing right now, I think sets up the conversation we're about to have about Wild Zero, like every every film we're referencing, every preference that's being uttered. Just it, it hold on hold on to what Harmony likes. Hold on to what Donato's talking about. You're going to need that in just a minute. And hold on to what Monagle's <laughs> not saying. <laughs> I'm not saying, I don't I you know, it's 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 all good, man. I like the slow burns. That's on record is that? But Harmony, before we start to talk about Wild Zero, just the last kind of thing I want to get on the record is talking about how you made the leap into film criticism. Um, you know, not only with This Ends at Prom, but the um, kind of the the different the different outlets that you've written for, the different films that you've targeted. I vaguely remember that that um, you referred to it as sort of accidental previously, that you kept writing about stuff and people kept asking you to write about more stuff. But um, talk a little bit about how you you got from being somebody that watched and appreciated these films to somebody that, that was actually crafting theory and kind of like leading what people were thinking about them and how they were receiving them.
2: Uh, yeah, there's actually, there's a few key contributors to like me getting into film criticism on like, you know, a semi-professional level. Uh, first of all, I started working in a bar, which it was a nerd bar. So people would come in and, you know, you would have lots of conversations about a lot of nerdy topics and routinely the things I would put on, I would bring movies from home and it's like, hey, we're going to watch Eight-Legged Freaks. And people are like, what? And I was like, it's amazing. It's, I promise, we're going to have a great time. And then we would talk about that and then other movies we would get. And I started to have people that I was able to have discussions with about the films I liked because I did not have too many of those for a very long time. When I finally met my wife and then got involved in like her circle, that also expanded like, Mm -hmm. the the people I could have like good deep conversations about film theory and film analysis and the, the specifically the films I want to talk about because I don't, I don't want to talk about fucking inception. Like I, I'm glad you had fun. I really could not care less. (laughs) So I, I want to talk to you about whatever, whatever it is we're doing rock and rule. I want to talk about that. And so that, that was, that was part of me getting into being able to actually refine my thoughts and really be open about them for the first time because, you know, you have your own things bouncing around in your head and that's just a thoughts. But when you actually are having a discussion with people, it becomes tangible and it's like, it feels more real then. And I went, Oh, I, I guess that I have opinions that are real and are manifesting themselves in, in discussions and in thoughts and how they apply to life and all these other things. And as that was happening, I started to look more into specifically for my medium um trans representation or trans themes in film and i sort of got into film criticism out of spite because i saw a lot of people with a lot of bad opinions that i wanted to i wanted to throw my hat in the ring for and it was mostly supposed to be just like a side hustle thing that wasn't supposed to ever make money it was like "Eh, i'm just gonna kind of catalog these and whatever and then suddenly people were like wow you wrote about sleepaway camp Tell me more about your thoughts on horror. Wow, you, 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 you have really deep thoughts on Silence of the Lambs. Tell me more about that. And I, I'm not going to say that I speak for everyone, but I like to think that I bring an, a unique approach to a lot of specifically horror films, but uh, trans cinema in general, uh, that I, I want to believe is desperately needed to, to justify my my spite and my rage and my saltiness whenever I see someone post something and I go, "No, you're wrong. This is why." So, uh, yeah, I just kind of fell into writing more consistently, and that's uh, that 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 how now we're here. Now I have a podcast where I talk about teen films with my wife because I never watched teen girl movies growing up, which. In of themselves, are their own version of schlock, and are a disregarded form of cinema that people look down on, and that's pretty much, pretty much the the, the niche that I fall into is defending things that people think are trash, and I, as a, as a human possum, I that 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 works for me. That's my brand.
1: And I mean, like you know, to your point and to your confirmation there. I adore Wild Zero, using that as an example. And could I write a piece on Wild Zero? Sure. Would I rather read your piece? Because it's going to be a far different perspective for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. And like that's important. Thank
2: you. Yeah, before I pitched the piece to you all, I I was looking up articles on Wild Zero. And there were very few. um, And I specifically wanted to talk about the queerness of the film, which, you know, of course, we'll probably get into when we discuss Mm -hmm. it here in a little hot sec. But I wanted to get into the queerness of it because most people just went, oh, it's queer. That's kind of cool. Or like, I don't like how this character reacted to that. That wasn't very nice. And I'm like, "Okay, but you're not looking at queerness from a straight perspective and vice versa, because that's kind of what the whole point of the romance of this movie is. Like, that's how it's functioning. And I I wanted to I wanted to explore that a little bit more than other people were doing so on the Internet, or I guess weren't doing so. (laughs)
0: I feel like that is a natural jumping off point for us to actually start talking about wild zero proper. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's uh it's wild zero time. Fuck. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Hey, everyone. So this week for our little bumper section of the show, I think we're going to try something a little bit different because Donato and I have a lot of interests. We have a lot of cool things that we like to pursue outside of the, the certified forgotten sphere. And I think it's time we showed a little bit of love to people who, uh, who we were doing who, doing cool things kind of in our community or outside of our community that we want to highlight. So uh, Donato, I, you had a really fucking cool weekend. So I want you to go first.
1: Yeah, I had a very interesting weekend that came together kind of out of nowhere. But what I did know, the one constant I had, was that Freddy Carlini, uh, one of the co-creators of the board game Mixtape Massacre, which I have become a little better at, and which I have become to play better and learn better, I knew he was coming to town, so we had a really fun game night on Friday where he brought Mixtape Massacre, the director's cut, which is coming out soon, and it is a little redux on the original mixtape with some new rules thrown in. So not only did he get to come in and show us how to play the new game, But I had the opportunity to, this is one of those, like, sentences that just happens from being in L.A., Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I got to go on Freddie Prince Jr. and John Lee Brody's YouTube channel about tabletop gaming, where they just play through games. And this one specifically was to highlight Mixtape Massacre, and it's going to be out sometime in October. But not only did I get to play with Freddie, him, and sorry, not Freddie Prince Jr., I got to play with Freddie Carlini with John on camera. But I also got to play with Christina Lee McCarthy, who you may know from *Child's Play 2* as Kyle. So literally sitting there trying not to nerd all the way out as I'm like, spoiler alert, kind of destroying Christina Lee McCarthy in this game. But I'm just like, no, you are like my favorite character from *Child's Play*, and it was just a very uh, surreal experience to do that. So I really do want to promote though Mixit Masker itself because I wasn't really a huge tabletop gamer, and that's always been Mongol's thing. And Monagle's always been pushing me to do more tabletop gaming. And the hilarious part is now that I'm farther from Monogle, but still getting into tabletop gaming more. Uh, so it was a really fun weekend of re- really getting a handle on Mixtape Master and understanding how this is a game that is built for horror fans by horror fans. It's an easy pickup because it only took me really two games to get knowledgeable about what to do. And there are so many chances to support ki- uh, either Kickstarters or buying the products, things of that nature. So I really do want to stress that like the team behind Mixtape is so cool. They're so giving. They love the community as much as making this game. And so I want to make sure that the community is like you know giving back a little bit. And the community knows. So do look up Mixtape Masker. Give it a try. If you want to play as your slashers, you can do that. If you want to play as survivors, you can do that. It's a multifaceted experience, and it's it's a hell of a lot of fun. I gotta say.
0: I, I love the fact that you are living out my interests better than I am that's just you know what if i were a different person i'd be jealous and i'm not gonna lie i'm a little bit but i just think it's cool as shit that you are engaging with the tabletop side and especially that intersection of tabletop and horror it's when it's when it works and you find good games and they have good mechanics and they're cool people playing them there's nothing better in the world
1: universal horror too that's been one we played a little bit mm-hmm. there's there's plenty you can get out there universal's a little more a uh, little more to do in that game but yeah mixtape look it up mixtape massacre it is a fun time and listen you can have a few drinks sit around a table with your best friends and it become a horror movie what else do you need
0: i believe it um so for myself a project that i recently backed on kickstarter speaking of kickstarter stuff that i'm kind of excited about is there's a new album out by uh, mc megaran who hopefully some of you already know he is a I mean, I believe the correct term is a nerdcore, but I think his, as somebody who's listened to a lot of different um, iterations of hip-hop, I think there's a, there's a lot more than just kind of like nerd culture in his hip-hop. It's a lot of like truth in, about his youthful experience and kind of how he came to age and what it was like, especially to grow up as a black kid who was more interested in his action figures than, than anything else. He recently kickstarted his next album, which is called, uh, I believe it's called Live 95. And it's kind of a throwback to NBA 95, that classic video game that he grew up playing and that a lot of us grew up playing too um and yeah i it, i saw a tier that was an opportunity for me to support it and get access to his entire discography so of course i'm going to take advantage of that but i think it's just it's it, you know a lot of folks there's a lot of different types of hip-hop out there that can speak to like a lot of different experiences that you have in life and my gamut of music that I like runs pretty deep and wide, but I I find that there's just like a lot of the lyrics that I listen to with Meghan Rand, a lot of the songs that he's produced, it just speaks to kind of the same experiences that I've had. I think he's a tremendous artist, I'm happy to support him, I'm excited to get some of the Kickstarter swag that you get when you support any artist, and I'm excited for when he comes through to Austin as well. He's got a tour, uh, I believe in October or November, and I'm gonna, depending on the COVID situation, I'm hoping to be able to see him live too. So. You know, I don't think we get an opportunity to talk enough about, you know, as as creators and artists ourselves, who we're supporting. So it's cool to hear you talking about supporting. And I know that you kickstarted um, the director's cut of of um, Mixed State Massacre. I'm supporting Megaran and a couple other. Gosh, I have like a thousand tabletop. I could talk about for hours about all the tabletop and RPGs that I've kickstarted over the last year because boredom and disposable income. Um, but yeah, these are these are sort of the things that are getting us excited, and we thought we might take a minute to share that with you.
1: MC Megaran, you look sus. The club hit of the summer <laughs> last year. If we were going out, because we were getting big into Among Us, he he hit with a fire track, and I love that song. And I, that's how I found Megaran. And everything you said, it, it's such good stuff. It just goes through nostalgia of playing through the beats of the games and stuff like that. You look sus, so good.
0: Yeah, that was that was definitely the anthem for a small group of us who played way too much Among Us in 2020. But yeah, that's uh, that's what we got for you. Thank you for listening. Um, And we're going to take you back now to the most anticipated, long-awaited show in Certified Forgotten History. All right. Welcome back. It is fucking wild zero time. And, you know... Sometimes when we do the this little pre-roll here and I do a quick synopsis of the film, for those who haven't seen it, you know, I put together my own thoughts and I try and do a summary, but I kind of like what I found online. And so I'm going to read the one sentence summary of Wild Zero, which is just so deliciously kind of correct um, that I think that there's a lot of ambiguity there that we'll be able to tease out. So the description, if you Google Wild Zero plot synopsis, um, which any good film critic should do just to make sure that they're not, you know, mucking up their own descriptions, what you get is this. Ace saves his heroes from alien invaders that turn people into zombies. Period. That's it. Um that that's that's correct. It's also incorrect. Um it, it, and it's also it adds beautiful levels if you want to talk about who Ace's heroes might truly be. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get into all that. Um and we're going to talk about why this film is just so much fun and why spoiler alert it's one that all three of us agree on, which always makes for a good episode. But Harmony, I want to start by saying you brought this to us. This was the movie. There was no question. You knew this is what you wanted to bring. What makes this the film that you wanted to come and talk about?
2: Because if you look at all of the individual elements of this movie, this is kind of my tastes distilled into 90 minutes because it's like, okay, I love me a good rock and roll movie with like a really killer soundtrack. Great. I love a good zombie movie. Perfect. I love mixing genres and creatures. So now we have aliens. Love it. Um, Ambiguous rock God superpowers provided by the band guitar wolf who are playing themselves and riding motorcycles that shoot flame and wear sunglasses at night. Love it. Uh, a, A laughable goof of a main character with fantastic hair. Beautiful. Queer themes. Love it. It's just all of these strange elements that all combine into this bizarre film. That is so many things that I love but it's also filmed like a music video littered with anime bullshit.
0: And I think it's incredible. Donato, you loved this film long before we recorded this episode too. It was one of those moments where you, I believe you told me you were like harmony picked wild zero. It's going to be fucking great. So when, (laughs) when was the first time that you watched this and what, what, I mean, I don't even need to ask, but for the, the one person who's listening for the first time, what is it about this film that you love so much?
1: Yes. Yeah, so this was a college watch for me. This is when I think I've told, you know, my history many times outside of even my origin story on Certified Forgotten. So the quick rundown is college for me was a real fact finding and explorative time for my cinematic love. And that turned out to be the Film Kid Friends in Hofstra because there was a large film program. I fell in with the film kids and I found those film watchers who gravitated towards horror and especially the weird stuff and the obscure stuff and the movies yeah. you really couldn't get outside of as harmony mentioned before like limewire and shit like that so we were a little past limewire and we actually had ripped dvds and things of that nature but went to a friend's house sat down he said i want to show you all this movie called wild zero and you're going to love it and for all the reasons that Harmony has already said and many more. Yes, I love Wild Zero. I'm in the Midnighter guy. I am into everything about the rock and roll i'm into everything about the horror comedies. And, you know, there's even notes here of like Night of the Living Dead and things of that nature because it just really wants to have fun. But it also wants to have fun in a way that is so indebted to like the J-Rock uh, Japanese rock and roll scene and it just being about love and acceptance and also people's <laughs> heads explode and also rockets <laughs> propel through people and blow cards up and disintegrate them. But still it's about love and it still is always about love.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's a lot in this film that, that was sort of, I want not want to say ahead of its time. It what certainly was ahead of its time, but it also, it, it kind of like in the eighties, this would have felt kind of in place in the 2010s. This probably would have felt in place, but as a film that came out around the turn of the century, It's interesting because this film does so many things that 20 years ago, 20 years later would have felt like perfectly in sync with where the horror genre is at. And that makes it because it was sort of a little, you know, knocked out of time it makes uh-huh. it such a unique movie because it's it really is marching to the beat of its own drum. Like it was doing zombie movies years after zombie movies had jumped the shark and before they kind of resurfaced and came back into the popular scene. It was uh-huh. doing the rock musical, the rock horror musical long before that kind of came back in vogue. So it's just, it's a dynamo little film that really just feels like it's dislodged from other periods in horror history and just got dropped into the right period for it to succeed.
2: Absolutely. Like this movie, even a few years later would make more sense, but it's strange to think that this is probably one of the last really, really fantastic Romero style zombie films before 28 days later came out and basically made it. So you can't really go back to that brand of zombie ever again. I don't think people will tolerate it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And like no. that's, that's sad because like these are particularly slow, particularly like, face-painted, goofy-looking zombies. But I, I I like that you can still do creative stuff with zombies because there's... Uh, obviously, it's post-Walking Dead. People got exhausted by it. It wore, it wore the genre out in the worst way and honestly did a lot of damage to the horror scene, period. But I think we're getting to a point now where people are starting to reaccept, like, strange zombies, like, where mm. they can do weird things with them that aren't just, like lumbering and rotting or like fast zombies like some world war z zombies
0: yeah there's it's not an accident that one of the you know again if you're kind of poking around and looking at this film and seeing all the different comps on imdb and wikipedia and just watch and all the places it shows up one of the the biggest comps for contemporary films is one cut of the dead and i think Mm -hmm. you know yes the humor and yes the the dynamic acting and all of that is the same but it's it's the zombies, like even though one is a zombie movie and the other is sort of a zombie movie, like it's the same kind of goofy over the top, lots of face paint. It is that it almost feels like that is there's an nostalgia for that now, Harmony, just like you said, like we've all missed that. We've done the fast running, you know, the walking dead, deteriorating zombies. We've done zombies as metaphor and myth. Now, we, you know, sometimes it's kind of cool to just watch them like be goofball monsters that get shot a bunch.
2: Yeah, um, probably the closest version to something like A Wild Zero that I've seen more recently is um, Zombiology, which I'm pretty sure is a Japanese film. Um, I I couldn't say offhand. I saw it in theaters and we've got slow moving goofy zombies. It's about family and like bromance. And also there's a chicken who flings eggs at people and makes their heads burst. And also might be a kaiju, and there's anime cutscenes in this film about bromance, and that that's kind of the vibe that we're returning to, especially overseas, because American zombie films definitely have this this, this action and like gun fetish mm-hmm. that we have not grown out of, really in action movies in general, but particularly with our zombie movies. And I I'm I'm really I'm really refreshed to see how well this movie and everything I love about it is coming back into vogue because I, because I don't know. I just, I, I think everything about it is so great. It's, it takes itself just seriously enough, but it's not a serious film and it's not trying to be, but it has serious elements um, particularly with the, um, the, the, the post relationship crisis where Ace freaks out over Tobio and basically is like, ew, you're gross. I'm gonna scream in your face. And she gets all dejected and goes and walks amongst the the, the other monsters that he has, is horrified of. I uh, those scenes are those scenes are perfectly straight and perfectly serious. And I, I've seen plenty of other you know films of this kind of caliper that again, like something like a the joke is that the movie exists, like the joke of dead sushi or or hentai common. Could be told in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but there's no emotional cord that really carries you through the rest of the film, I feel like. And this movie has it when it really didn't need it. It just makes the film better and more enjoyable as a result.
1: But I think when we compare, you know, a Wild Zero in 99, that in American cinema, we were or sorry, American horror cinema specifically, we were post Scream. We were kind of having that moment of teen slashers were coming back in a way and we could have meta comedy fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there wasn't a lot of heart to any of it. There wasn't a lot of, you know, I think Bride of Chucky gets away from that. Bride of Chucky actually escapes unscathed in that sense. But as we get into Scream 3, that was 2000, so that's not far from there. Uh, You know, other films that released around that time, you know, Japanese horror was actually giving a shit about its stories. It, It was doing things like dead sushi as you're saying and is it insane that sushi can turn people into these beasts with like rice sushi around their mouth that would then spread the disease that way yeah it is crazy mm-hmm. bonkers fans but wild zero gets stuck in there where you have the perfect example of why international horror is so important because american horror all look the same american horror mm-hmm. looked the same kind of cast of young hot actors and actresses they get slashed off by a killer that is ambiguous for most of the time and then we find the reveal at the end and rinse and repeat that was mainstream horror for a long time around 99 2000 2001 mm-hmm. then we got the remakes japanese are you're getting things like you know ringu the grudge and definitely some very vicious ghost stories but then you do get into the wild zeros you do get into the, into the tokyo gore police as you get into these movies that go so hard into the midnight absurdity and yet still retain something that matters and still retain something, especially wild zero. The quotes are bonkers. The quotes are bonkers crazy. It's just these greaser rockers running around with tremendous pompadours. And, you know, they're, they're always slicking back their combs and making fun of kids who don't have like everything is so greaser aesthetic. But then they throw lines out just like rock and roll is never dead. Like rock and roll will like outlive us all. And just these really sweet notes about, I mean, do we, do we get into the quote of the day? Do, do I read the quote now? Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. it is very much as Ace has just seen Tobio. Uh Tobio has revealed herself and has revealed that, you know, she has a penis and Ace has that moment where it is the, genuine shock reaction of what he is having to see at the moment uh mm-hmm. and unfortunately his reaction is running away and he is very he's angry at the world at this point that this beautiful person has just shown him this and then he calls for guitar wolf because as as we've said or maybe we didn't say this uh ace saves guitar wolf the band and guitar wolf the actual person does a blow oath. Mm-hmm they give him a whistle and say ace whenever you need me i'll i'll be there so ace is having a moment of crisis from what he has seen and <laughs> guitar wolf looks at him points at him and screams at him love has no borders nationalities or genders do it <laughs> and then he vanishes
2: rock and roll
1: yeah yeah in a <laughs> cloud of smoke he just vanishes there <laughs> but i mean that is such a strong assertion of just it, it like there's no subtlety to that. It is just straight mm-hmm. out the gate like what the fuck are you worried about? Love is love. Who cares, dumbass? Yeah, it it's and it's so easy
2: to just have those declarations and have it not be a big thing. And I think that's one thing that I love about this movie is its sincerity because a lot of its big influences are western culture, but it's being processed through like a Japanese lens where you have um the, the guitar riff that Guitar Wolf plays pretty much whenever he springs into action is Rumble by Link Ray, which was an instrumental considered so dangerous, they banned it from the radio despite not having lyrics because they thought it was going to elicit street fights. Mm-hmm. Um, you have references to like George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which is a very clear influence on these zombies. And all of it is just, hey, we think this is cool. And they're fully honest about it. Like there's no shame or like, no, this is like a guilty pleasure. Or like, yeah, I mean, I kind of like this weird thing. It's like, no, I am 100% committed to this thing that I think is the coolest shit ever. And love is one of those things.
0: Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad we're talking about this. Cause a few months ago, Harmony, you wrote a piece for us at certified forgotten that talks about this film. And if you haven't seen this yet, we're going to link out to it everywhere this week. So you'll have an opportunity to, to, to go and check out the piece. And there was one line that I want you to expand upon a little bit because it kind of stood out to me um, uh-huh. You're talking about the relationship between Ace and Tobio, and you say i don't want the takeaway from this piece to be about representation or queer visibility. Obviously, seeing a straight man loving a trans character is lovely, but Wild Zero is a film about how straight people handle queerness and proves how truly it in, how truly easy it is to support us. I think that's, a, that's an interesting point and something that sometimes gets lost in the conversation about horror films. You know, we as horror critics and horror writers spend so much time digging representation out of the cracks of like 70s and 80s horror. You know, mm-hmm. we go, oh, this character is coded as trans. That's trans representation. That's great. Oh, this character is coded as gay. That's gay representation. That's great. How that character is portrayed in the film is almost sort of secondary to the fact that it exists. That character exists. The film has carved out space. And so there is an opportunity for people to see themselves in that character, positively or negatively. And I like what you're saying here about kind of the, the need to, to move past that, to be able to engage with the text and engage with characters beyond just the idea of like, oh, look, a transgender character, isn't that great? So I kind of wanted you to, to maybe dig in a little bit more and talk about why it's important to look at Tobio from more than just the representation angle.
2: Yeah, that was actually one of the things that motivated me to write that piece that I was talking about earlier, is that when I read other people's opinions on mm-hmm. this movie and they brought that up, they basically just said, this is cool. I love seeing this. And I, they didn't really expound upon it. Uh, I'm actually sort of on a hiatus from writing because I'm just exhausted talking about trans representation and horror because so many people are fighting for representation, but at this point, visibility isn't, isn't the be all end all. And that's not what we should be fighting for. We should be looking past that we should be looking for equity and we're not there and nobody's choosing to focus on it. And I think that that is a really important takeaway is like, Hey, the thing that you're seeing is cool. I'm glad that we're seeing representation, particularly from horror films where it was frequently had to be coded for, you know, any number of reasons uh, before the nineties in particular. And that's great. But what's past that? How How is this character, what is their role? How are they affecting the people around them? What is the overall message of them being trans and how does that relate to the story? I think these are more, far more important discussions that we should be having for our, the 90s. And now that we're 20 years removed from that, y- we need to be looking, looking past that. Like this movie is over the top. And if you don't go over the top, you can't see what's on the other side. And we need to be looking to the other side because the emotional heart of this movie is the romance between Ace and Tobio. And if she was not trans, then this movie runs differently. The, 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 that scene doesn't occur that way. His character arc doesn't change. It's almost Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but it's mm-hmm. not entirely. Like, there, there's certainly this expectation that he has for her, because she's honestly a very plain character. She does not have a lot of defined traits. She's almost ancillary to the plot in terms of who she is and outside of the effect that she has on ace but what that means for the story as a whole is so big and so important because this is a movie about how straight people presumably guitar wolf and presumably ace because loving a trans woman as a dude doesn't make you gay and that's that's a thing that seem a lot of people have fear of and it leads to a lot of trans murders unfortunately which are legal in a lot of parts of the US under the trans panic defense where you just were so outraged by seeing this dick that you didn't know that you murdered someone. And it's, it's cool. You, you weren't in control of yourself. So it's really not overly complicated than just saying like, Hey, I love this person. And that's it. There's no, no borders, no nationalities, no genders. It has to be, it it can be so simple. And yet we 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 don't want it to be simple for whatever reason. We want to overly complicate it. <laughs> Love shouldn't be that complicated.
0: Yeah, and you, this is, I, I should also shout out another piece you wrote for us on Bit, which um, I would argue does exactly what you talked about. Moves Beyond Visibility talks about the ins and outs of the relationship of the transgender character and how that informs the film as a whole. So uh-huh. not not to say that, you you know, you've done some of your best writing for Certified Forgotten, but you've done some pretty good writing for Certified Forgotten
2: thanks i (laughs) i like to think that i've done some of my best very compact writing for certified forgotten the ones where i don't have to spend two months hammering out 3,500 words for some overly wrought thing that's gonna cause me many nights of anguish like the nice i I think that wild zero article i think i wrote in 24 hours because it just was so pure
0: passion we make we put a word limit on everybody we make we make it easy or hard depending on on how you approach it
1: yeah (laughs) also that piece if you google wild zero love you're the first hit. You you are the number one Ugh. SEO hit. Love to see
2: it. Love to see it. <laughs> Especially for niche stuff like this that I don't know
1: how often people are searching for. Yeah, so it's one of those things, too, where we're just having this, what I would say is a very serious conversation about a very serious part of this movie that takes itself very seriously. And I, I know I use that word three times there, but I'm stressing that because after that sequence, it just goes like murder blind and we get the zombies, mm-hmm. the aliens. We get Guitar Wolf uh, basically like using picks as weapons. And my favorite scene in the entire film is the evil hot pants. Captain man is mm-hmm. shooting a grenade launcher into the room that Guitar Wolf is in. And as an escape method, Guitar Wolf jumps out during one of the explosions. what are talking maybe like a five, six story building. And yeah. just jumps down to the pavement below. But my favorite part is as he jumps out in a fiery explosion, he still screams rock and roll and strums his guitar as he's plummeting to the ground. And that is still <laughs> the kind of movie that Wild Zero will always be. Yeah. And then he
2: makes sure that his guitar didn't get out of tune once he hits the ground in a superhero stance. Right.
1: He Exactly. Superhero stance, tuning his guitar. Captain is shooting a gun at him as he's trying to tune his guitar. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's it's so incredible like because really they just throw everything at the climax of this movie it's like hey you want lasers um you want you want aliens you want possibly some sort of childhood rivalry slash ex-friend plot that isn't expounded upon great like just everything is going to happen in 10 minutes and it's going to be so cool
0: (laughs) well it does beg the question then why haven't more filmmakers thrown their wild zero stuff into the mix lord knows that there are enough dynamic and unique and and small rock bands or artists that could really come into a horror film playing themselves and kind of like pop the hood off of it you know why why haven't we seen more of like regional rock bands or things of that nature i can't i'm not you know I'm, all my music is bluegrass and sad so i can't name any good artists <laughs> here but i'm sure the two of you can like it's such it works so di- it's such a dynamic thing it's almost like the thing in musicals right is that characters become so overcome with emotion they can't talk. So they get to sing and the audience uh-huh. gets to hear it. You get to communicate directly with the audience, blah, blah, blah. This the film kind of has that same thing too, because you know, the band is able to sort of rep like stand outside of the film proper and it it serves as a is almost a weird grounding agent for it. They get to do all the really ridiculous shit, which doesn't take away from some of the characters like Ace and Tobio that are living in a facsimile of the real world. So where are all of, where are all of our rock band indie horror musical things?
2: Where's our Rockula remake? Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I does, does everyone want to be taken seriously so they don't want to do this? Cause I, I like some of my favorite movies are shit. Like, Rock and Roll High School, which is again, like it's Roger Corman. It's a, it's a beautiful B movie and the Ramones are doing as good of a job as they need to for that movie.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think about the I just think about the way of like American cinema, though, and the way that we're a little eh, more rigid and strict in our plot lines and things of that nature mm-hmm. where Japanese cinema allows this Japanese cinema has always allowed this and they want their midnighters to be almost nonsensical to a point. But also in that. We have some bands that are trying things. I mean, like, you know, look at Coheed and Cambria. I mean, everything they make is translated from comic books that they also, you know, lead into. So I think that those fantasy elements, those are the bands that do take outside and concept albums are a thing. And I, I do. I do think about like these concept albums. Like, why haven't we gotten something bigger than that? And I, you know, I think in my head, like, why haven't we even gotten like a heavy metal two, Uh where mm-hmm. there are so many bands that could flow into The spot that they've been in, and like you know, I I put some bands out there, and people are like, "Oh, like those aren't like straight metal bands, like Queen of the Stone Ages in the metal band." I'm like, "Did you watch heavy metal? There are like love ballads. Like, like what do you, what do you want in that? It can just journey is in (laughs) (laughs) heavy metal. Exactly. It's like you know, you look back on it, and you can do, you can do so many cool things with that. I I just don't think American cinema allows that because I think about the movies Guar put out, and you can find them on Amazon Prime, but. They didn't get much notoriety for a reason. Despite Guar having the personalities that they have and the costumes they have, you'd think that would lend itself so easily to to be a movie star, you know? To have these crazy movies that are Guar esque they didn't really go anywhere. You know, you think about Christmas specials, like the joke of, like, C- Kiss Saves Christmas. That's the Americanized version of these movies, unfortunately. We don't really get that many bands participating and being a part of a larger thing, where I would love that. I, I would love to see more of that, because by one of my favorite intersections is music and horror, whether that be a horror musical or just you know, I, like I consider Return of the Living Dead is so reliant on its punk soundtrack. So, mm-hmm. like those are my favorite kind of horror films. So I I couldn't be more into that idea.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Scooby Doo and like the Rock and Roll Mystery featuring Kiss, but it's awesome. <laughs> and, it's basically a Kiss and the Phantom of the Park but done with Scooby-Doo and they might be aliens but they also have rock god superpowers. So, yeah, we we get stuff like that, but again, it's a, it's a made for DVD Scooby-Doo movie release and I just don't know if we have a we we appreciate silliness in the way that we should to get like really cool stuff like this where we lean into like the the pure absurdity of a good rock and roll musical. Like i love me a good rock movie i think there's some of the most fun and tailor-made for my taste kind of films i have like a giant detroit rock city poster right behind me yep. right now so I, I don't know i don't know if we i don't know if we're in a place where we want that but there's so many places that's that would facilitate it for streaming that i don't see why we couldn't
0: honestly japan you know they they get this movie and we get what Metallica into the never with Dane DeHaan. I suppose that's what we deserve.
1: <laughs> I actually like that. So I'm, I'm actually, well, I'm not gonna, gonna, I, I, I will
0: you know, say it's, it's Nimrod, Nimrod Antal. So I can't, I, I, I like him quite a bit. Um, <laughs> well, uh, we're kind of nearing the end of the conversation, which means we will, we'll talk in a second about the, um, you know, the reception of this film and, and where we think it finds its audience going forward. But I want to leave the door open because there's, there's so fucking much here. I want to leave the door open to both of you to, to, chime in with something we haven't had an opportunity to talk about, something that stands out in this film, you know, something that, that you think is deserving of a little bit of conversation before we wrap. The answer can be nothing. We can move right along. Well, so I don't that know. I'm trying to think that's what I'm <laughs> debating.
1: What I'm debating right now is the fact that we have teed up both the absurdity and the, like the bedrock of the film being heart. And the combination of that is a mix between microphones that spit fire and, uh, love being this ultimate saving grace, no matter who you are. And to have both of those images and the things we've talked about so far, there is so much more in here. There are these subplots about lovers who don't understand themselves in the moment, but then do in their zombified forms there. There is the entire captain subplot who is this dude with a bowl cut and also just like rails drugs (laughs) and is the big corporate entity of this film trying to also kill music Because like that's a a plot in here for for a little bit. It's so packed with things that feel like they should be in 17 different movies, but they all somehow fit in Wild Zero. And I, I think that really is just an experience that you should have for yourself with your friends, playing it loud and just ignore the few scenes where the amplifier feedback is a choice and Oof. it's a little screechy i'm not gonna lie to you i am never one for those uh concerts where like the guitarist just puts his guitar up right to the amp it's like yeah you hear that i'm like yeah it sounds terrible it sounds so <laughs> fucking bad why are we doing this
2: Yeah, no, I I absolutely think that everyone should, like, there's so many things we could talk about. And honestly, I want to believe that we haven't even spoiled too much of, like, we have. people will still be shocked by some of the things they see in this movie, because there is so much. There's, like, almost a House of the Dead first-person zombie shooting scene with this one Mm -hmm. random female arms dealer that exists for some reason, because that's a subplot also in this movie. And I think people should absolutely watch it. Uh, It's it's around uh, th- th- there's definitely some some dubious mm. uploads of it on youtube but as a person who who used to illegally watch you know porn as everyone did and has spent several years subscribed to my favorite actress's personal channel despite not watching that much anymore i just i i want to make sure that like pay your people pay for your porn buy the yeah. movie if you appreciate it but you don't have to Pay for it if you have the means. Maybe later down the line, but it's out there for you to
0: enjoy it. Yeah, you can always you can pull a play that I always use in my book, which is I buy the vinyl and then I stream the audio, and I feel like I sleep with an easy conscience at night because I can Spotify bands that I've already purchased. So, if you can order the DVD from somewhere and then you find it somewhere else, that seems kind of like the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because uh, this is a, a DVD that I think is has a very limited release. It's like. Thirty some dollars to get a hold of right now, so it's 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 a little pricey for just a just a DVD from twenty some years ago that hasn't been updated. Unfortunately,
0: it's a it's a weird sell. Yeah,
1: it's it's a grainy image. I'm not gonna lie to you. It uh very much feels like it was released in 2000.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that is the final question. Then you know, assuming and let's say for the assumption because this is I think we can agree this is an iconic film. Eventually, Japanese films are notoriously difficult with rights. Uh, a lot of stuff that plays festivals takes five years, 10 years to actually be distributed on home video here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So let's assume that this film eventually gets the Blu-ray or 4K from a Severin or a Shout or whoever manages to unfuck the rights for this film and, and bring it to our market. Where What is the future of this? Like, Is this a film that you think is going to kind of exist in this state where some people know it, some people don't? It's really, you know, people like it and talk about it on shows like this. Or do you think that this is going to be something that once it finds its way into a release that people can watch streaming or on home video and it's just accessible and it's easy and it's legal, is this the kind of thing that is just going to become a, you know, a retroactive 90s horror icon? And Harmony, go first.
2: I want nothing more than for everyone to see this movie and fall in love with it, because if you talk about it on Twitter, everyone say, who has seen it talks about how much they love this movie. So there, there's a lot of love for it and i wanted to have that release so more people can appreciate it i think it's always going to just kind of be resigned to its midnight movie b-movie space but it's such a good film in that specific space it's one of the most complete and absurd and endlessly enjoyable movies of its ilk that i think it's always going to be to some degree a well-kept secret but it's going to be one of those movies that everyone's going to go around and go, okay, but for real, we're watching this tonight.
1: (laughs) Donato, you agree with that? I very much agree with everything that was said. And I mean, this is, yeah, it's an interesting circumstance where this played the 2000, I mean, Toronto International Film Festival, we have to assume it was a Midnighter, but it played TIFF. So this was a film festival movie and TIFF is a big festival. So it definitely got a little bit of reach because as i said before i saw this in college and that was quite a long time ago so i feel like wild zero has been around long enough and has been that talked about underground you need to see this kind of movie where when we do finally get that release that is the good quality version of a high like a high res blu-ray and all these things it's just going to go wild because people know it people talk about it I, people love to talk about it actually because wild zero is one of those movies like hey i've seen wild zero i'm part of the club but that club is so much bigger than i actually think so it's hard to say it's going to be quote unquote rediscovered i think it'll finally just be available and appreciated on the level it should be because once it hits that uh, release hopefully that means places like the alamo can work it into their weird wednesday schedules and things like that mm-hmm. because that's where it's really going to have that replay value as harmony said that it fits that midnighter mold and you just put it on a marquee at the alamo it's going to sell out every damn show in.
2: Yeah, I think so, too, especially like if something like Sixteen Samurai, which has like yes. the same vibe as this movie and would be a great double feature with it, if that can get a 4K Blu-ray release, then this also could and should.
1: Yeah, it's insane that it doesn't. I, honestly, insane to me that it doesn't have that release and doesn't have that quick availability or it's even just get it on Amazon or something like that. I would still am a little baffled that Wild Zero is so mm-hmm. hard to find a good copy because, as I said, Synapse Films has one available. It's about 30 bucks. I I splurged for it so I could have it because I do want to own it, but it's Mm -hmm. it's not the best transfer. They did the best they could, I guess. They did. (laughs) It's the best transfer (laughs) they could do. You are right.
2: Yeah. But it's even heartbreaking that something like this doesn't exist on Tubi, which Tubi has like maybe the most underrated collection of cult films of any of the streaming services. Mm Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of weird things that, like, like Big Man Japan was on there last I checked. Hell Comes to Frogtown, which was, like, impossible to get a hold of forever, was on there. Like, all of these cool films are on there. And just, like, please, just, pl- just drop it on Tubi. So, Tubi, get a hold of it so that I can tell people, hey, it's free. Go watch it there. It's going to be a nice version of it instead of the presumably, like, 360p that exists on YouTube.
0: Yeah, and the only thing I'll add to, to that is just, you know, I talk a lot about how nostalgia works in 30-year cycles because I'm interested in when things have been wane, And it's probably a little early for a 1999 film to really captivate us. You know, we're still, I think, right now working our way, gosh, probably through the early 1990s. you are starting to see the music and the fashion and all that kind of stuff catch up. So I'm hopeful that the window for this film to be kind of, quote-unquote, rediscovered, um, is has not quite opened yet and in a few years once we get to like that that 30-year mark um, and all the people who watched it in high school can't afford to to buy 4k special blu-rays for 60 bucks or whatever um, that's when the movie will kind of find its own so but i agree with everything both of you said i think that that the the future is so bright you gotta wear shades <laughs> Well, that is our show. That is Wild Zero. Take everything you heard today. Take the monster movies and the sci-fi stuff and the asylum stuff and the, all of that. Combine it with the love story. Combine it with the rock and roll musical and go out and watch yourself some Wild Zero however you can. Promise it's worth it. Harmony, you uh, you are taking a break from film criticism proper, as you said, but you still got a lot going on. What are some of the best ways for people who are interested in your work to, to seek you out or find new episodes of your podcast?
2: Yeah, I host a podcast called this ends at prom with my wife, where we get to, she gets to rediscover teen cinema and usually is introducing me to it for the first time. And uh, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Some, some have aged (laughs) a lot better than others. Um, I, for example, we just recorded the princess diaries. And at one point the grandma who is the queen compares her granddaughter's eyebrows to that of a Bushman, which was really jarring to hear so some things are better than others but yeah it's a this ends a prom it's super duper fun we occasionally get to cover some some b-movie schlock uh, especially for our teen movie hell segment which i'm very excited to be doing a an, an 80s b-movie night one involving a teenage street prostitute when that's going to come out i'm very excited so yeah keep an eye out for for that on Twitter and Instagram at this ends of prom, and I'm on there at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor,
0: and if I'm remembering correctly, you guys have done Jennifer's Body, right? So if somebody's looking for a leap from horror to horror, if they need like a common thing, um, they can go listen to your Jennifer's Body episode.
2: Oh yeah, that was like our sixth episode, mm-hmm. and we had Jordan Cruciola there, the patron saint of Jennifer's Body.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and if you just want to listen to Jordan talk for pretty much like a barely into uninterrupted hour and a <laughs> half it's it's pretty great um we have plenty of other horror stuff we do every period every once in a while we have some good stuff coming up for october that I'm excited for so
0: yeah stay tuned um Donato if people want to read your writing and stuff where do they like find you and things
1: you can read my writing and other stuff at Donato Bomb on twitter letterboxd and instagram that is where i'll be posting everything you will be seeing everything from my remake column on blade disgusting to my reviews on what to watch to my scariest scene ever column on slash film and whatever the hell else i decide to waste my time on instead of sleeping so follow along let's see what happens
0: (laughs) smart decisions as for me, you can follow me on Twitter on my new handle, at Matt Monogle. I figured it was good to, to lock down my name as much as possible. Um, I'd also encourage you to go and visit certifiedforgotten.com. We publish about six articles a month in addition to the podcast that we do. And we have had a very good August in terms of quality of writing. We have a good month every month. It's, just, you know, just people send us amazing pitches and then they write amazing articles. Super easy to be the editor of the site. But uh, we've had a really great month in terms of some of the content that came up in August. We're already really excited about the stuff that we're going to be sharing in September. So if you like what you're seeing and we're constantly having conversations about how to support independent writers and things of that nature on uh, social media, one of the best ways to do it is to go find an article you like and share it. So go find something on Certified Forgotten from a writer you admire, maybe Harmony Galangelo, and share that on social media. (laughs) Just throwing some ideas out there. And that's it. That is our show. Harmony, I want to say thank you so much for coming back a second time. And you know what? If I'm being honest, I think this was the better version. So I'm pretty happy with what we did. I think so too. I,
2: I've had so much more time to collect my thoughts this time. So it's it's, so, it's very refined
0: in a yes. way. You aren't missing anything. This is the best version of this episode we could ever do. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it. Thank you, Harmony. Tonato, I, uh, I think it's time for you to take us out. And I am just, I don't even know how you're going to do it on this one. So I'm all ears, bud. Rocket. Oh, I could have seen that coming. Rock and roll.